Thank you, Kendi, and welcome everyone to Bethany Community Church as we worship together online and as we begin uh, to regather over the weeks ahead. It will be a joy uh, to see many of you face-to-face. Last week or a couple of weeks ago, we had the women's retreat uh, folks in here in the room, and it was such a joy to speak with actual people in the room. I'm very much looking forward to our regathering, grateful for what God is doing in bringing people back together. Today, we uh, conclude the series in the book of James entitled Displaced, and it's kind of appropriate that we're concluding that as a time when we are regathering. And as we regather, it's important that we consider together what James has to say to us in this final chapter, because this final chapter really is about, in many ways, how to relate to one another as we come back together. And my suspicion is that for many of us, coming back together uh, will require of us the use of some muscles that haven't been used for a while socially and emotionally and even spiritually. And uh, toward that end, I think what James has to say here today is very good and very appropriate. So please pray with me, and then we'll look at the scriptures together that uh, Kindy has read for us. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that as we gather today, uh, you are doing a work in our nation that is enabling us as well to regather physically. We're grateful for that, and we now pray, Father, that you would uh, speak to our hearts through your text in, in order that we might be shaped to be people of hope in this transitionary season as we move in a new direction. Toward that end, we give you thanks in advance for what you'll do, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we uh, bring this book of James to a conclusion, it's important to remember that there are all kinds of seasons in life. If you go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we know that we live in this kind of uh, a sense of dualism, and I'll speak of it later, but there's joy and there's sorrow, there's tears and there's laughter. There's scattering and there's gathering. And uh, to that, we add Paul's biography. There's a a time to be well and a time to be uh, uh, well-received and a time to be hated. There's a time for wealth, a time for want. There's a time for feasting, a time for fasting. There's a time for staying apart and a time for coming together. And so we're called, all of us, to embrace every season and to live well in every season that comes our way. But when the season is darkness and when the season is something on the painful side, it's vital to recognize that in those seasons that we would not have chosen, we have resources to live well. And learning about those resources has been the major theme uh, throughout the book of James, and today's conclusion brings everything together so that James says to us, look, when life is going well and when life isn't going well, look, whatever is happening understand this, you're always called, always called to be three things. Be patient, be plain in your speech, and be prayerful. These are very practical. I just love the practicality of these three Ps. Be patient, be plain in your speech, be prayerful. Those are the things that we consider in our text together, James chapter 5. And we begin, of course, with be patient, which is rooted in uh, what was read to us today. Therefore, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. And then there's this appeal to the farmer. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. And you two be patient and strengthen, excuse me, strengthen your hearts. So that you, here's, the, here's the word to us today. 
Be patient with yourself. We're going to look at that today. You could be patient with others. That's appropriate. You can be patient in your calling. That's appropriate. But what I'd like to speak about today in this multifaceted exhortation of patience is as you regather, as you enter into a new season of life, be patient with yourself. When you look at the faith of those whose faith is elevated in Hebrews 11 in the Bible, what you recognize is that the faithful people, all of them failed somewhere along the way. And I would even add, uh, some of the failures were catastrophic in a sense. Noah got drunk when he left the ark and it led to a real family crisis. Abraham slept with the maid. Rahab was in the prostitution business. David committed adultery through abuse of power and in so doing impregnated his neighbor's wife and then killed the husband. And so all of these are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as those who have, listen, exemplary faiths. I don't know if they'd be welcome in some churches today if people knew their stories, but they're told that they have exemplary faith. They're elevated as people of exemplary faith. So if you're not perfect, as you reenter life, and as you reenter into relationships, I want to say this. If you're not perfect, don't panic. Sin is never the biggest problem for any of us. It's what comes after sin. At that awareness stage, we either often default into denial and self-justification. That would be uh, Saul in the Old Testament. Or uh, we uh, default into shame and we kind of run away. And if we default into either of these, whether it's shame and self-condemnation or denial, we get stuck in our faith. And then the, the, the seed of the gospel, the, the, the good news that Christ is alive in you is prevented from growing. It's prevented by pride. It's prevented by shame. And that's, <coughs> excuse me, that seed has to grow if we're to grow. So the problem, whether it's denial or shame, is the seed that was planted doesn't grow. And so I've said this many times before. The problem in our lives is that our life is not a snapshot, it's a movie. And many times we self-select out of God's story of hope because of a particular snapshot. That time that uh, you became really you know, violent in a moment of rage. That time that you gave into your addiction for days on end, weeks on end, months on end that failure that landed you in prison, that infidelity that resulted in divorce. Whatever it was, there's this thing, and now this thing defines us. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we're told that the life in Christ to which we're called is a journey, and it's a, watch this, it's a journey of continually turning away from either denial or shame toward Christ. And when I turn away from my shame toward Christ, I listen, I find this every time. I am forgiven. And we need to be, each of us, Christ to the other in this time of re-entering so that 
the shame that many of us feel for what we posted online, for what we did in secret, so that that shame that we feel is forgiven because it's our calling now, listen, to be the presence of Christ for one another as we begin to gather again around campfires, around tables for fellowship, out on a hike, here in this beautiful building where we're privileged to worship. We will gather carrying some of us shame. What an opportunity for confession and forgiveness and restoration of relationship. One of the most profound moments in my life was a moment uh, when I was sitting in a restaurant with my wife, Donna, and I don't remember the restaurant, but I remember that I had failed in some big way. And it's a way too personal to share with all of you today, but I'd failed in a big way, and I'll never forget saying to my wife, look, I've done this thing, and I'm confessing it to you. And, she's, and, and then she was hurt, but she, this is what she said, of course I forgive you. Of course I forgive you. Those words in my 65 years of life are some of the most meaningful words I've ever received. To know that there's a person with whom I can be completely naked and authentic and vulnerable and know that I will be forgiven. That's huge. So I need to be patient with myself and turn from my shame towards Christ or my self-denial toward Christ. But when I, listen, when I'm turning toward Christ, I'm actually turning toward you as well because you are the presence of Christ in the community of faith that is the church. So uh, we want to be people who are turning so that patiently we have this kind of quiet confidence. Oh yeah, you know, we're continuing on this pattern. We just keep, we keep showing up and in our showing up, there's confession. And in our confession, there's forgiveness. And in the midst of it, there's truth-telling and there's confrontation. But as long as we avoid these two pitfalls of denial and self-justification and shame and condemnation over here, as long as we avoid those, the only thing left is Christ and vulnerability and confession and truth-telling and forgiveness and restoration and transformation. Be patient. Keep moving away from these two things toward the one thing that will sustain your faith over the long haul. I can't tell you how many people are no longer walking in the community of faith, and many of those no longer walking in the community of faith are no longer walking with God because they're stuck in one of these things. Shame and condemnation over here, or or self-justification over here, or a funky combination of both. Whatever it is, it prevents ongoing transformation. Be patient. So keep caring for the soil of the heart that God has given you through your rule of life, through your daily activities, many of which are not particularly exciting, but be patient. So be patient with yourself, be patient with your calling, and the illustration of the farmer is perfect here. If your calling consists in part of fulfilling various roles as a mom, as a dad, as a spouse uh, in your vocational life, that it's true that like all of these roles that God has given you call for actions. And here's the thing, every action that you do 
will elicit a reaction. And wisdom says this, don't put much stock in the reactions. Like, what are you called to do? Do it. Some people are going to love it. Like, I received a note this week from somebody saying, you know, Richard, I've been watching quietly in Colorado every Sunday, and it's been feeding my soul after the death of my spouse, and it's so wonderful to receive encouraging notes. But whether I receive encouraging notes or not, I got to keep doing what I'm called to do. And then sometimes the response is negative, like when over the course of the past year, I've been called an instrument of Satan and too liberal and, and, and too conservative and too hard-hearted and too, uh, uh, too uh, proud, I have to still get on with what I'm called to do. And sometimes, uh, perhaps most difficult of all, we receive neither praise nor condemnation, but uh, just kind of a sense of, oh yeah, well, that's what you do, whatever, uh, neglect, particularly hard of your parents. And yet, whether the response is positive, negative, or apathy, it's really important that you remain true to your calling. And I will say to you that uh, we just have to look at history to learn that those who are true to their calling are not always well-received in the moment. Jeremiah was not well-received in the moment. We love him now. Uh, Amos was not well-received in the moment. We love him now. David was not well-received in the moment. The existing king tried to, uh, tried to kill him, and now he's called a man after God's own heart. <clears throat> Hildegard of Bingen, uh, who lived in the 12th century, wasn't called a saint in the Catholic Church until the 21st century. Like a 900-year waiting period, she wasn't well-received at the time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached and was killed. Uh, now, now we love him. He's my, he's my favorite breed. Martin Luther King preached and was killed. Look, here's the point. Whatever it is that you're called to do, embrace quiet consistency. Just keep sowing the seeds of Christ's life in the soil of the world. If you're called uh, to serve meals like this beautiful video that we saw this morning, then go serve meals and make them the best meals possible. If you're called to give, then open your wallet and give sacrificially. Give, give what's comfortable and a little bit more. If you're, if you're called to use your gift of teaching, use your gift of teaching. If you're called to parent, parent. Just keep showing up. You don't need fanfare. Uh, fanfare. You don't need praise. Uh, when you get condemnation, let it roll off. Keep showing up. It's very, very important that we learn this because it's the little things that we do without fanfare that generate what I call compound spiritual interest. And over time, over days, weeks, months, decades, that faithful fruit of sowing bears fruit. I'll never forget being in uh, Colorado uh, one time enjoying tea with the wife of the founder of Torchbearers. Uh, founder of Torchbearers being Major Ian Thomas, the wife being uh, who we affectionately called Mrs. T. And so she would invite me over. Every time I went there to teach, she'd invite me over for tea. And the, this particular year that I was there teaching in uh, Estes Park, she had a guest staying with her who was living on an island off the uh, coast of Italy who was one of the first students in the Torchbearer School in 1947 in this kind of castle in England. And so uh, the three of us sat and enjoyed tea. This woman, now living off the coast of Italy, 
was it was a German who was in the Nazi youth and then uh, went to the castle to go to a Bible study and a, and a holiday week and then stayed on as a student and then met and then met Christ. And I thought, man, this was seed sown 50 years ago. And here I'm sitting and enjoying tea with this, with this woman because of faithful work done decades earlier. At the time, decades earlier, no one would predict what the seed would become. And here's the thing, it doesn't matter. If you sow faithfully, the fruit, the scope of it, the timing of it, the nature of it, that's God's prerogative. Your, your responsibility, sow. Keep sowing. Are you tired of sowing? I am sometimes. Keep sowing. Keep sowing. Keep sowing. So, be patient with yourself. Be patient with your calling. Second, be plain in speech. It's a very interesting passage here. Uh, James is kind of going on about, you know, prayer and, and patience. And then right in the midst of it, in verse 12, as he's bringing this whole thing to a, a, a conclusion, this is what he says. But above all, brothers and sisters, don't swear, either by heaven or earth or with an oath. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you won't fall under judgment. So uh, look at this. Be patient, pray, and then right in the middle, above everything else, watch your words. Very practical. This harkens back to James chapter 1. Be quick to hear, slow to anger, slow to speak. But here it's intensified. It's saying that the follower of Jesus should not engage in speech that's framed with an oath. Oaths exist in cultures because of the presumption that much of what we say is rubbish. That's the only reason you have an oath. So when you go to court, you put your hand on your Bible and and you swear, what? To tell the truth. And the weird assumption in that moment is that without your hand on the Bible, your words don't carry weight. They don't carry the weight of authority. They don't carry the, the weight of truth. So you have, to, you have to intensify your words. And I mean, we all know this is a reality, right? That uh, much of what we hear isn't true. And so, so we're told here, don't use an oath. Now, the point, I'm going to just say to you, the point isn't the oath per se, there's a more important point. And, and the more important point is this. Both James and Jesus, who says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, they both knew that oaths are like antibiotics. And do you know what I mean by that? Like when you go to the doctor, what are you told? You're told, look, use, if I give you a dose, use it all, but a good doctor won't just give them to you because if there's too many out in the world then the antibiotics will lead to the bug creating its own immune system to overcome the antibiotic. In other words, the more you use the antibiotic, the less effective the antibiotic becomes. And James and Jesus knew that the more you use oaths, the less effective the oath becomes. Because first, I don't trust your speech, so now I, you have to give an oath 
But if you continue to give oaths, and if you continue to say, Nathan, I swear to you, I'm telling the truth, the assumption is that if you don't say that, you're lying, and soon the assumption will become, well, you're just a liar anyway, and now I still don't believe you even with the oath. And when that happens, it becomes a post-truth world. And a post-truth world is precisely the opposite of what God intends for us because a post-truth world creates mistrust and cynicism, both of which rob everyone of the possibility of shalom, justice, and community. And by the way, we live in a post-truth world. Uh, There was a treaty signed at Fort Laramie uh, and other military posts Uh, in what is now Wyoming, and in this treaty signed at Fort Laramie, the U.S. government recognized the Black Hills of the Dakotas as the Great Sioux Indian Reservation, and the land was given to the Sioux tribe, uh, the exclusive territory of the Sioux, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota, uh, the Arapaho people, and then after the American government made a treaty, like an oath, Then gold was discovered in the Black Hills, and settlers began moving onto the land in mass. The natives uh, resisting this treaty's violation said, you guys are welcome here. This is the land that your government gave to us. This resulted in the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876, which resulted in the destruction of that treaty, the violation of the treaty, the loss of life, the loss of shalom, and the loss of trust in a government's word, emancipation, and then Jim Crow, shalom, stolen, pastors uh, abusing power, shalom, stolen, spousal infidelity after making vows, shalom, stolen. The result is this, when we do this over and over and over again, and when we see it over and over again in a culture, pretty soon nothing is taking itself uh, face value anymore. Experts are presumed to be stupid because they're experts. And this happens in science, in medicine, in public health, certainly in politics. And so what's the answer to the problem of living in a post-truth world? Well, uh, the way of Jesus says this. Look, you can't control the fact that the world is controlled by the father of lies. You can't control that. You can't control the rhetoric of your favorite political party. But you... You can be a person who uses less words and is careful that the words that come out of your mouth come from the Spirit and are aligned with reality. That's your calling. Many of us use too many words. I have been accused of that more than once in my life. I remember when we ran a ministry, I'd made... uh, kind of expressed a a desire regarding a person's future, and then that didn't happen, and that person came to me and said, Richard, you don't know the power of your words. And she was right. It was very convicting to me. And then long before that, uh, the very first time I went climbing, uh, we were in a circle on Mount Baker the night before attempting the summit, and there was a meeting, and I was talking too much. And then I remember, I'll never forget, the guide said to me, Richard, boom, he did a, he shot a little gun at me, boom. He said, your lips have just been blown off. I don't want to hear another word from you. Too many words. 
right? The Native Americans, going back to the Lakota Treaty, uh, have said this regarding our Western culture. You people use so many words that we stopped listening centuries ago. That's a powerful word. So what's the answer? Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Let the words that you speak come out of your heart. You can't control the fact that we live in a post-truth world, but you, the church, don't fall into the same patterns that are so prevalent in the world. Pontificating and, and elevating speech Allow your words to have the ring of truth. And then the final calling is this, be prayerful. Verses 13 to 16 is a call to prayer in absolutely every situation. Is anyone among you suffering? Then they must pray. Is anyone cheerful? They must sing praises. Is anyone sick? They must call for the elders of the church who will pray over the person anointing the person with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick. And the Lord will raise that one up. And if that one has committed sins, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. The effective prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. And then an illustration of Elijah praying for rain when there was a drought. So uh, there's a call to prayer here in every situation. And it begins in this, is anyone suffering? Pray. This is verse 13. This isn't just uh, physical illness. This is every form of suffering. Uh, The fallout of illness often means disruption in family systems, and disruptions reveal issues in our personality and our soul that need addressing. Uh, There are often, you know, financial challenges attending illness. But listen, when... When you're suffering, here's the point, ask for help, pray. When you're rejoicing, give thanks. Going back to what I said in in the intro, it's a way of life in this world that it's not all suffering. There are plenty of reasons to rejoice as well. Rejoice in good circumstances. Rejoice in seasons of intimacy. Rejoice uh, by remembering God's faithfulness in the past. Rejoice by simply paying attention to creation. Rejoice in the smell of the ocean, the taste of your coffee, the taste of your wine. Rejoice because you receive good news. Rejoice for specific provision. Beautiful weekend, sunny weather, clean water. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. So suffer, pray. Rejoice, pray. The important observation here is that we just acknowledge that we live in a world where there's the, the, the suffering and the joy. And both are real, and both are important, and we embrace both. And if we demand that our life be all joy, our faith is unsustainable. It's not all joy, but if we also wallow over here in our suffering and fixate on the cross at the expense of the resurrection, that faith is also not sustainable. Don't be this morose Christian over here. Don't be this this person living in denial over here. Live into the seasons of every moment. Anne Lamont wrote this beautiful book on prayer, and the title is this, Help, Thanks, Wow. And she says, hey, basically, there's only three prayers. Help, are you suffering? Ask for help. Ask for help from God. Ask for help from, for, from one another. I'll just incidentally note that I had the privilege this week 
of interviewing a, a, a Bethany family, a young man in his 30s who uh, has walked through the valley of uh, stage four colon cancer. And uh, he and his wife uh, courageously, with a great deal of vulnerability, have shared their story and made it available. It's in our podcast at spiritualbody.org, the most recent publication. I encourage every one of you to listen to that story because here's where you see not only suffering, but also in very unique ways, rejoicing and living it every season with courage. Help, 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 I'm suffering. Help, it's cancer. Help, it's a broken relationship. Help, it's loneliness. Help, it's failure again. Help, it's my, it's my, it's my sin that I can't overcome. Help, thanks. Thanks for fellowship. Thanks for sunshine. Thanks for the gifts of the day. Thank you for provision. Thank you for friends. Thank you for healing. And wow, <laughs> wow, common compassion, a chance to address homelessness in the city of Seattle. Wow, partners in Rwanda, changing villages because of the presence of Christ. Wow, reconciled relationships. Wow, a, a healing from stage four cancer. Wow, wow, God's at work. Man, what are we doing? Our eyes are, we're so blind sometimes that there's, there's no thanks and no wow because there's been no help. <laughs> Pray. All the time. Help. Thanks. Wow. It's a great conclusion to the book. Be patient. You'll gather together. There'll be a new muscle. You've said some stuff online you regret. I have. You've said some stuff in some emails that, that you never would have said in person. I have. And now you got to rebuild. Be patient with yourself, with one another. Be plain in your speech. Think before you open your mouth. Be prayerful. In every way. Help. Thanks. Wow. These are the people God wants us to be in the season ahead. Father, our desire is to be people of prayer and patience, people whose speech is plain, and yet we fall short. We all do. Thank you that your patience with us exceeds, exceeds our patience with ourselves. But as we turn to you now, I pray that your spirit would speak to each one of us regarding the practical next step we can take to be people of hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship together.